Morgan Neville is a film producer, director, and writer. For over 20 years, he has been making films about music and the role of culture, several of which were nominated for a Grammy. He has also produced several non-music films and many documentaries. He won an Academy Award for 20 Feet from Stardom in 2014 and an Emmy for Best of Enemies in 2017. Recent projects include Abstract, The Art of Design, They'll Love Me When I'm Dead, and Won't You Be My Neighbor, a documentary about Fred Rogers, which was released by Focus Features in 2018, becoming one of the best reviewed and highest grossing documentaries of all time. Morgan Neville, welcome to The Creative Process. Hi, good talking to you. So you've done so many documentaries, and I guess the primary focus has been uh, music documentaries, but also some political ones as well, or different uh, art forms. Um, but I thought it was interesting, one of your most notable ones that you, Academy Award winning, 20 Feet from Stardom, I just, I found that so moving. And I thought, wow, it's about time that the people behind the scenes, you know, who really support. But I thought, well, isn't that also sort of a metaphor for what documentary filmmakers do in relationship in terms of their relationship to um, public visibility in comparison to like the major motion pictures. Like, yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think without a doubt, I found myself relating to the backup singers mm -hmm. when I was making that film and understanding what my job is to tell somebody else's story for the most part or another story as best I can. Um, but it's not about me. Uh, in that same way. But I think the thing that connected with that film and the thing I didn't even realize when I started it is even though I identify with the backup singers, I think most people identify with backup singers. I think most people play a supportive role. There aren't that many rock stars. There are many more people who work in supporting roles in every industry. And that's the thing. When I took the film out at the beginning and started screening it for people, um, the 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 reaction I got instantaneously from people who were middle managers at companies or working in galleries or you know anywhere is oh I'm a backup singer yeah <laughs> I think and I think everybody everybody related to that idea of um, of being um, supporting a, a greater good or a greater goal and taking pride in the craft of a job well done. I mean, I think ultimately what that film becomes about is people's happiness is related more to the, um, more towards their ability to, to not worry about what they were told they were supposed to live up to, but rather just how happy they could be with the life they actually have rather than the life they were told they should have. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I think a lots of us, um, you know, we can have grandiose dreams, but that can also make you miserable in life. And ultimately, at a certain point in your life, you have to be content with the life you have or else you're going to be a very unhappy person. And I think the range of people in that film shows the, the entire um, entire range of how people can deal with those kinds of things. People who are very tortured by it and people who are very content by it. So... In that way, I feel like that film, like most of my films, and particularly my art films, um, aren't necessarily about th the art or the music. I mean, I love art and music, but it's always about something else. There's always kind of another agenda there. And that music, for instance, becomes kind of a Trojan horse for what the bigger story is. Um, so, you know, I love telling those types of stories. I mean, I, the, when I think about the types of films I make what I generally say is I make films about culture. <laughs> That's kind of my default. And by culture, it's not only film and art and music, um, but it's food and clothing and language and media and the culture of politics. And, you know, I'm, I'm much more interested in, in culture, which I define as how we define ourselves and how we define other people. You know, that's what makes up culture. And those are the kinds of questions I always find 
incredibly interesting and compelling. And in a way, kind of the great underappreciated force for empathy and understanding, which is kind of what our jobs are as documentarians is to, to, to foster empathy and understanding. So, um, you know, I think, you know, when I've, when I've looked at the work I've done and people ask me about this, I think they kind of with under the umbrella of culture, I think they kind of fall into two main areas of interest. One of which is how does culture connect us or divide us? Mm-hmm. And the other you'll like is creative process <laughs> that I've done a lot of work around creative process. And oftentimes my films do both. Um, but these are the two wells I've come back to again and again and again in making things is, um, how creative people do what they do because I find that kind of inspiration um, endlessly fascinating. You know, seeing somebody um, talented um, finding their voice or using their voice in some way, I think is incredibly uh, relatable, but also kind of awe-inspiring. So, um, you know, I've ended up doing that you know, it's, I never thought about it that way when I started making these things, but retrospectively, I was like, yeah, yeah it's, it is something that I really am fascinated by um, and continue to be fascinated by. Mm. And I think that's, it's so interesting because uh, you say that culture is how we define ourselves, which is, is true. And I think it's interesting because in terms of a documentary, when people are completely you're asking them questions and they're defining themselves they're it's it's not that they're being caught unconsciously although that happens right they forget that the camera's there they forget um, um but it is uh, the other end of the spectrum in terms of drama where they're supposed to be unselfconscious and and yet everything is a uh, it's so scripted so I, I really am wondering what do you find um what kind of intimacies um honesty um you know, truth telling uh, you can explore in documentaries uh, drew you to that as opposed to narrative drama, fiction. I mean, narrative drama. Sure. I mean, I, I know, I mean, lots of documentarians yeah. don't, they, they, uh, they don't like the term narrative filmmaking because it implies the documentaries are non-narrative, which of course yes. they are narrative, yeah. but, but beyond that, you know, and I, I'm fine with it, but I think um, it's interesting because I feel like, um, you know, in scripted films, people are trying to infuse a spontaneity and a reality and a being in the moment into something that's very artificial. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a lot of what we do as documentarians is try and impose a structure or a form on something that is utterly um, real and alive and in the moment and uncategorizable in many ways. So, you know, we're kind of doing the opposite coming from opposite ends of the same goal, you know, which is to kind of create something that is or feels authentic to a, to a certain truth, an emotional truth or a literal truth. Um, I mean, I, I, I think of it as scripted film is about your voice, you know, and documentary is about your ear and what you hear, you know, that, that, and I, I, I come to this, this realization working with kids out of film school for years. You know, when I work with people and young kids come in and people with a uh, film school training, you know, you're told, what do you want to say? You know, and I think when you make documentaries, that's the wrong question. I think when you make documentaries, the question is, what do you hear? You know, when people say what how do you do interviews? Um, I, I may have a lot of techniques for doing interviews, but the main thing is I listen really, really hard. Mm. I think it's important um, to be fully engaged in a conversation and really listen to what they're saying and, um, and not go in with all these preconceived ideas. I mean, I think it's good to go in with an idea or a plan, but you have to abandon that once you're there in a real moment, because otherwise um, you're trying to make real life conform to your preconceived idea. And it's never going to be that. And it's probably going to be more interesting 
than yeah. whatever your preconceived idea is. So I think for me as a documentarian, I have to be in the moment as much as my subjects. And that's what keeps them in the moment to the point where they can forget there's a camera there or they can forget um, there's a movie being made, you know, because yeah. to them, I, we're just here doing something and we all get carried away in the process. And that's when it gets really good. Exactly. And that's, and then you can invite the fact that you're having a real conversation, then those who are watching it get to be a part of that. You know, it's real. You know, that's the whole point about documentary. It has to be real. <laughs> you know, that's the, the, the advantage. Um, you know, it's strange here yeah, because I had a conversation with a student too, because I work a lot with students and, and I said, well, yeah, I prepare, but I also, it's not like, you know, following the list of questions. Like I have that, maybe it's the back of my head, but I have to listen to what's there. And he says, and, and the student said, oh, so yeah, that could be fun when you're not prepared. I said, no, no, that's, that's like more prepared <laughs> because yeah. it's in you. <laughs> so, um, but that's a, it's a weird conception that, you know. <laughs> I know. Well, I mean, the way I actually do it is if I'm doing an interview, I'll typically write up, um, I'll think about it, I'll research it, I'll write up a list of ideas. Mm -hmm. And generally those ideas are one or two words. They're just reminders for me. Yeah. And I have a list that might have 80 words on it yeah. that are kind of prompts. But, but basically by the time I'm doing the interview, I never look at that paper again. Yeah. Like I'm- You lose eye contact. I'm done with it. So I never want to lose eye contact and I rarely ever- look at paper or questions or anything during an interview. And mm -hmm. part of it is, you know, conversation has a natural flow to it and you mm -hmm. want to honor that flow and go down those alleys. And like, I'm prepared to not get to something that I wanted to talk about if, if the conversation's naturally flowing in a different direction. Mm -hmm. I think it's better to honor the flow of a conversation than mm -hmm. to kind of impose uh, your interrogation upon your subject because it's not an interrogation. It's a conversation. Yeah. And, and like I said, I, I, I believe a lot in the kind of the flow of how these things go and honoring that. Right. Cause they've entrusted you to in, invite you into their homes, into their lives. And I think that that's interesting. That, I mean, I was going to ask yeah, of how you managed to have a, you know, engage their trust like at the beginning level even before like the camera rolls well yeah. i mean i'll say i mean trust is the name of the game yeah <laughs> that, that um you know trust is the most important um thing you can have in making a documentary you know because yeah. we are asking people to be vulnerable for us and to share with us the most important things in their life oftentimes mm -hmm. and then allowing us to share those with the world so it, I mean, I, I've been doing this for so long and I've had so many conversations with people not on camera um, about what it is I want to do. And I think a big part of what I do is talk about what it is I want to talk about. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not like a gotcha filmmaker, <laughs> you know, it's not, yeah. you know, where I'm not, you know, to me, I'm often looking for the idea um, I mean, even when I did Won't You Be My Neighbor, this film about Mr. Rogers, this children's television host, um, when I first came up with the idea for the film and I went and I talked to his widow, Joanne Rogers, what I said to her was, I'm making a film about ideas. You know, I think the ideas are the thing that I find really inspiring. And, and often I feel that way about the, the stories I get. Uh, excited about, which is, you know, what's what's the emotional truth or the ideas? What are the ideas that that really motivate it? And the facts and the kind of ins and outs tend to be the often the least interesting, you know. And I, I feel like there's a, you know, in documentary, there certain documentaries can veer towards a more of like a a Wikipedia kind of storytelling, which yeah. to me is not great storytelling, which is, you know, and then, and then, and then, then they did this and then they did that. And, and I kind of love doing as little of that as possible, you know, of avoiding exposition as much as possible. Like you only use facts and exposition and stories to underline the big ideas or the emotions. And at least that's how I make films. And, um, 
I find it liberating. So I'm always um, trying to get away from as much exposition as I can. Exposition is the enemy <laughs> in my kind of storytelling. Sure. And so, and so what is it like, um, you know, when you're Fred Rogers or, um, you know, so he's someone, I, and I believe that when you're approaching it, that he's like a, almost a saint of children's television or something, or uh, Johnny Cash or Keith Richards. I mean, these icons who have been covered or Fred Rogers, I hadn't been covered so much, but I think he obviously had his show for many decades, but... Yeah, but I, I will say about Fred yeah. Rogers was a little bit of a punchline when I yeah. started making that film. You know, yeah. it's like that... And I think there's been a major reappraisal of who he really was, in part because of the film and yeah. and all the things that have come out of that. Um, but and every case is different. I mean, my Johnny Cash documentary is not about Johnny's life story. It's called Johnny Cash's America, and it's about... Why is Johnny Cash one of these rare figures in our American culture that connects with um, with punk rockers and evangelicals, you know, with the left and the right, with young and old, you know, what are the commonalities and how through examining those ideas, can we understand the things that actually connect us that we can agree about? You know, I mean, that was really the idea that that film was about. Um, I mean, the Keith Richards film was kind of an outlier um, cause it wasn't even meant to be a film in the beginning. <laughs> I mean, the, the real story I'll tell you quickly was that, you know, his, um, manager said, Keith hasn't done an interview in a while and he's working on music and he has to do something. Will you come interview him just so we have some footage of him? All right. And of course I would love to go talk to Keith Richards. So, um, so I prepared by putting together a hundred albums mm-hmm. Uh, vinyl and I brought a turntable and we set it up and I just again I had no agenda mm-hmm. I went in and I was not I didn't have a list of questions mm-hmm. I mean I researched and I knew his story in way in a certain way I feel like I'd prepared for that interview my entire life because I'm a music geek and years and years and years of listening to blues and country and reggae and rock and everything informed me to have this conversation with Keith where we just played records and talked about it. And he had such a good time. He said, let's keep going. And then we just kept going and going. And part of that was for somebody like Keith Richards, who has been interviewed so many times and everybody asks him the exact same questions. How do you not do that? Well, what does Keith want to talk about? What are, how do we not ask those obvious questions and ask all the questions people never ask him? And once we did that, he completely loved it. And it became, you know, so that film was, I think, a representation of who Keith really is without having to list off how he feels about Mick Jagger or how he feels about this song or that song. You know, it's much more of a, a portrait um, of who he is now. So each of these, there's an idea behind them in a, in a different way. And that's, that's the thing that gets me excited, you know, much more than the biography of it. Um, and then, I mean, there's another thing that since we're talking about creative process is that um, I do some TV shows too. And I do a show called abstract. Um, and I don't know if people have seen it, but um it's a Netflix show about design, but that show is entirely about creative process. <laughs> it's a show about um, design, you know, and we can all define design in different ways. I mean, I, one thing somebody had said to me is, you know, design is art with clients, you know, <laughs> or, uh, you know, design is um, essentially decision-making, you know, trying to solve one little problem after another creatively. Um, and what I enjoy about that show and about this creative process, about making things about creative process is there's a universality to them. You know, when I was making my first episode of abstract about the German illustrator, Christoph Niemann, Mm. I remember we were working on it and my editor turned to me and said, Oh, this, this is about editing. He's talking about editing. And Ah. I said, no, no, he's talking about directing. (laughs) And of course, Christoph's talking about illustrating. 
And, you know, there's a thing when you get into talking about creative process where it's not about the discipline. There's a universality to the kinds of problems we come to as creative people and the types of decisions we have to make and the solutions we come up with that I find incredibly helpful. You know, I love hearing how people solve their own problems. And I've learned so much about what I do as a filmmaker from listening to people who don't make films, but who make art or music or, or uh, you know, anything else. So th- it's, it's something that, again, I'm there not to interrogate them, but to learn from them and find out what excites them. You know, I think that's just a really healthy point of view to go into something. And if you do that to go full circle, people understand that you're being genuine and they're willing to give you their trust, you know, that you can then, um, you know, people understand you don't have an agenda. And it's something I say a lot to people when I first talk to them about doing a project is I have no agenda here. Like I'm not here because I want to say this or say that I'm here because I want to listen really hard and give the truest representation of what I think is being said, you know, and that can be an artistic representation or a literal one, but you know, that I'm not coming into a subject um, with any kind of agenda. It's interesting. And, and I don't know, do you still find time to teach as well? Because you spoke about teaching, but um, there's a, there's, um, I've spoken to a lot of professors and the concept of, you know, what we expect from our education models has change like uh, universities and these are university professors telling me that they become like professional schools and you have to it's like the opposite of documentary making you have to know what you want to learn before you go in so the idea of the universal education is like under threat you know everything specialized so anyway i had asked you (laughs) are you still teaching and what did you no i mean i've never i mean i did teach a little bit um years ago i taught a class um at an architecture school actually about documentary film, but about documentary film as a way to kind of understand um, urbanism and community and the communities you're building in. And, and it was a, um, it was a great experience. And I talked to classes, but I, I don't regularly teach just because I'm too busy (laughs) to to do it. Um, But, but I like teaching because you know, you do this long enough and you feel like, oh, I've learned a few things. Like people need to understand this. And part of what I do even in my business is, you know, I do a lot of mentoring and a lot of young filmmakers who are working on things come and I'll help produce or executive produce their projects and, or give them feedback or give them advice or anything I can do. Um, so, you know, there's a big part of, of that, you know, I'm, it, it's when you're talking about um, universal education. I mean, that, that part of what I love about my job is I'm an utter generalist, Yeah. you know, and, um, and I feel like my job allows me to do that. I mean, I started as a, um, as a journalist and, and I love journalism and I, in a way, you know, I think documentary is just another form of 3d journalism. You know, it's, it's a similar intent, but you know, I feel that uh, I'm not, I don't, I'm not forced to be one thing when, when I make films and even, you know, just the process of making a film, what I, you know, journalism, I love, but it's interviewing people and then writing things or researching and then writing things. And that's part of documentary, but, you know, documentary is, um, it's visual, it's musical, it's editing, it's interviewing, it's traveling, it's writing, it's developing, it's finishing and coloring and mixing, you know, it, 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 it has all of these different aspects that keep it constantly changing, <laughs> you know, that it's not like I do the same thing every day. I feel like um, I'm constantly writing these waves of what the productions are doing and going in different phases of where the films are going. And, and I love that, you know, I love that kind of process. And, and, also just in terms of my intellectual curiosity it gives me the chance to figure out where i want to go um so you know i don't you know i have made a lot of music films but i haven't made a i haven't directed a music documentary since the keith richards film five years ago you know in part because i've done so much music stuff and um 
and they're just other things I'm interested in. So, you know, I'm making all kinds of interesting other <laughs> projects in different directions. And it's, you know, I, I'm fortunate enough that I can indulge my curiosities now. And if I want to go learn about something and make a film about something, I, um, I just go do it. And that's, that's kind of great. But I feel like I, when I realized this is what the job was, is being a documentarian, I thought it was like the greatest, um, the greatest job I could think of. I remember within two weeks of starting my first documentary when I was, you know, 25, uh, I wrote to my parents and said, uh, oh, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Like I knew instantly that this, this was the job for me because it involved everything I liked doing. And most of all, it involved um, being a curious person, you know, which I think is kind of the number one job trait to to want to do documentaries. And what do you feel that you can learn best? I mean, because there's lots of kinds of ways of learning, like there's learning through, you know, physical, you know, making things, um, you know, reading books. Or, but what do you feel you can learn best through conversation or that you love about that element? Um, I mean, it's interesting because I've done projects, um, you know, say you're doing something about Johnny Cash, you know, there are 40 books about Johnny Cash and I read most of them. Um, and then there are other films like 20 Feet from Stardom, for instance, there was not a single book about backup singers. I found like two articles about backup singers. That's it. So there was no way to learn than to speak to people. So what I actually did just to figure out what that film was going to be and what the world looked like was at the very beginning, the first thing I did was um, I did about 45 oral histories with backup singers just to learn, you know, and, um, and I love that, you know, I, you know, I loved um, hearing things for the first time and talking about things you know, they hadn't really been interviewed. Many of them had never been interviewed, most of them, you know, so, um, you know, so it was fresh for them and it was fresh for me. And, you know, I felt like we were all kind of trying to figure out what it was together. Um, and it was just very uncharted territory, which is great. Um, so, you know, I often will shoot a lot more than I, I mean, everybody shoots a lot more than they put in the film, but but even in terms of interviews, I'll often shoot many, many more interviews than I put in the film. And, and I don't do that to be discourteous of the people that give me their time in their interviews. And I often tell them, you know, that just because you may not be in the final film doesn't mean you weren't hugely helpful in my understanding of what this was. And I think, um, I think that's very true that it's, you know, even, um, you know, virtually any interview you do is going to teach you something, even if it's not essential or it may teach you what you don't want to do, or it may teach you, give you a piece of a different puzzle. And so, you know, I like interviewing and talking to people as much as I possibly can. I mean, I just think it's a great part of the process and it's something I love. Um, and I just find people, you know, endlessly complex. So that's what's, what's good about it. You know, that's the part, one part of my job that, that uh, I really love doing. So, um, but I think it's hugely informative. And, and in many ways, it's, um, it's, it's often the stuff in between um, that you get from interviewing people. You know, if you read an article it tends to, you know, give you the essence of something or give you the top line of something or give you, you know, um, you know, the greatest hits of something. Um, but when you talk to people, you get to go down all these alleys and follow all these tangents. And I find often that those things lead to more interesting things. You know, I love being able to go down um, conversational alleys and, and taking it that way. You know, and again, it gets back to the listening, the listening that, that we had talked about, which is, um, you know, if you keep to just trying to stick to an agenda of what you're talking about, you're going to miss the stuff that you actually um, 
want to hear about. <laughs> I mean, it's, I've said to people, you know, I've, I learned this, I think the hard way when I was starting is, you know, you think you need to talk about something and then you find yourself at the end of the day, you know, telling a friend about this thing that happened in between questions or happened after the interview or something that seemed so outlandish that it would never fit into your film. And then it occurred to me that, oh, maybe that should be your film. You know, maybe yeah. the thing that seemed, if it's interesting enough for you to be telling other people about it, like maybe that's the thing you should be following. You know, I think you need to kind of abandon your agenda. I mean, I, you know, I, I feel like, um, you know, when, when I put together a treatment for a documentary or I put together questions, you know, I describe a treatment as a drawing a map to a place you haven't been. Yeah. But once you go there, you need to redraw that map. <laughs> and once you get into the edit bay, you're not trying to make the film you set out to make. You're trying to make the best film with the footage you have. <laughs> you know, you're, you need to constantly blow up the idea of what you were doing and embrace where you are. I'm Sophie Mackin, a politics major from Bates College and an associate podcast producer for The Creative Process. One of the most important takeaways for me from this conversation with Morgan Neville so far is the value of listening. Morgan talks about how he tries to eliminate his own preconceived ideas or assumptions when working on his films and especially when conducting his interviews. He emphasizes letting the subjects guide the interview and not forcing any agenda upon them. It struck me when he discussed the endless complexity of people and the very unpredictable nature of his conversations. He never knows exactly what he might uncover or learn about when he sits down with one of his interviewees. I think these lessons are extremely relevant to our political and oftentimes partisan climate here in the United States. Instead of recognizing the intricacies and individual differences involved, our approaches to addressing many political issues have been fraught with preconceived notions, stereotypes, and biases. Many leaders have seemed to stop listening, not only to each other, but also to many of their constituents, the people they're supposed to represent. In my opinion, politicians must be open to change, rather than rigidly sticking to their party's views or their own previously held opinions. Like Morgan Neville, they should adopt an approach of curiosity, a flexibility in their expectations, and a commitment to accurately responding to the stories that they hear. Morgan makes the important point that interviews have the power to reveal details, emotions, mannerisms, and tangents that are almost impossible to replicate on paper or in an article or a book. There is really no substitute for authentic human conversation and storytelling. Morgan reminds us to make the effort to talk to one another, listen to marginalized voices, and reach out to those whose stories do not have a platform. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with documentary filmmaker Morgan Neville. You know, I think um, I'm the great advantage and the disadvantage of of nonfiction of the real world is, the, you know, the great advantage is um, that the real world provides stories that you could not imagine, and if you did imagine them, nobody would believe them. You know, because mm -hmm. uh, the impossible happens in the real world every day. So yes. that's the great thing about it. The hard thing is that we don't live in tidy narrative structures and not that everything needs to be tidy, but you know, by making a film, you are hanging some kind of a frame on a story and trying to deliver the essence of that story to an audience. And um, so you have to look, I think documentarians are always kind of looking at the threads and the connective tissue and how these things tell a story. And so you know, I think it's both being 
open to whatever it's going to be, but then trying to put order into the chaos of real life, you know? Um, and, and that's what editing is. And, you know, in a scripted film, you write and then you make a movie. Um, when you make a documentary, you make a movie and then you write, you know, you shoot a movie and then by editing, you, editing is the writing process in documentary. So you write it afterwards, essentially. Um, and so that's just, again, kind of an opposite instinct, but, but the edit bay is really where documentaries are made. It's also interesting the different set of expectations that people when they watch documentaries and when they watch well a story a, fi a fictional film story what they want is something as you say something groomed or whatever with the story you know you have they have that thing that the, and it, it, the tidy ending the thing that exactly life is and like I remember I was having a conversation with Carter Burwell and he scored uh, the film on the life of Julian Assange and he said, but real people's lives aren't, you know, exciting. And even Julius Assange, he wondered how it worked as a film, you know, like a cinematic experience. And I thought, I thought that he's had a pretty exciting life, but it didn't fit what the, the expectation is. And what I love in documentary is, let's say, in story, we want this adventure with that ending. And then with documentary, we want the experience that we know it's going to, but we want to feel like we could have had that yeah and it's it's interesting i mean i i often say that documentaries um still play by the same rules that scripted films do which is essentially it's about story or character mm -hmm. um documentaries tend to be often much more about character than story you know and there are documentaries that are almost entirely just character profiles you know, some of my favorite films like Crumb, uh, that documentary. Um, and then there are other stories, documentaries that have a lot of story to them. Um, and, and a great character, you know, I think of a film like Man on Wire says, you know, both has this very strong story and a very strong character, um, in a way that is very cinematic, you know, but in a way that is not, in any way average you know it's it, certainly philippe in that film is not um philippe petite i think his name is is not um an average person anyway he's you know kind of extraordinary in that way um and then they're the kind of um quiet character portraits too which i um which i find endlessly fascinating and that's a lot of what i think you know i've done in shows like abstract, you know, where we're just doing artist profiles essentially, um, where it's a chance to kind of just enter somebody's world for a while. And, you know, the advantage of doing something like that in a shorter form is you're not, you're not trying to carry a 90 minute time, um, you know, narrative. So, you know, you're, it's a smaller slice, so you can kind of let the subject play out the length that wants to be, you know, I think that's something that's been really interesting about this new streaming era we're in is the different types of lengths of things you can make uh, in film. So you can make five minute films and 10 and 30 and 40 and 50, you know, that was virtually unheard of when I started. I mean, if you ever intended people to see it, to make a, a 40 minute documentary was didn't really fit anywhere, you know, it was hard. Yeah, it's um, so interesting. Yeah, it's gotten much better. And yeah, I mean, frankly, the entire way of making documentaries is completely transformed in the time I've been doing it. But, um, but a big part of that is also just the, the means of production and the means of distribution are completely different too. It's like when I started, you had to get an expensive camera and you had to get expensive editing gear and you know, now you could pretty much do it all on your phone if you needed to. <laughs> so um, there's both incredible flexibility and um, creativity, but also, um, you know, responsibility too. To just because you can doesn't mean you should. Um, but I think the good thing about it is the barrier for entry is so much lower that if anybody wants to make a documentary, they can. 
I mean, essentially, most of us are already living documented lives. Yes. Most of us are posting <laughs> some. Yeah, I mean, we, we're doing it right now, you yeah. know, but we do it on social media and we do it, um, you know, day to day. I think it's the, the, the place of the camera and the sharing of our private lives publicly is night and day from what it was 25 years ago when I started. And I think, um, again, that has great opportunities, but also, um, you know, there are a lot of pitfalls too, because, because not everything is interesting (laughs) or not everything should be shared (laughs) or not, you know, there are those types of questions. Um, Intimacy, like, like knowing that I'm sure there's some young people growing up who their sense of what is intimate and what is private is um, vanished. Yeah, I have, I have a 15 year old daughter and uh, it's, that's a conversation we have all the time. Um, you know, it's also interesting in terms of I, what I love about documentaries um, and, and I don't mean to always be contrasting between, you know, like a motion picture fiction film, but is the mul- multitude of voices and that, you know, even those that aren't the principal players for that, for those moments when they're the, they're really the focus of attention. When the film, it seems like you have the hero, the anti-hero, you have a few people who are allowed to really have voices and whose perspectives will matter because they can't. And what I really love is it can honor the fact that someone who's not the principal player can really have valuable observations on the story. And I, I love the way that, that that's a stunning Absolutely. I mean, part of the reason I tend to not have a large number of interviews in my films, I, like I said, I do a lot of interviews and then I cut it down, is that anybody who's in your film, even if they're just a talking head, is a character in your film. And so I feel like somebody needs to earn their way into the film. They need to say many things and they can't just speak once. Like they ha- everybody has to really contribute to the film for them to be in the film because they're all characters and you as an audience are starting to understand who they are and how they all relate to each other and who you can trust and who you listen to and who's funny and who's poignant. And so I feel like a big part of what I've done is I give a lot of thought to kind of the casting of the documentary, uh, I would say, which is something people don't really talk much about but it essentially is casting. Yeah, I mean, casting a wide net, shooting lots of things, pre-interviewing, interviewing, and then cutting it down um, to kind of its essence, you know, as, as much as you can. Um, but by doing that, the people who are in your film um, can have a real impact and make a real impression, you know, that, um, I mean, we were just talking about One Should Be My Neighbor. I mean, one of my favorite the biggest laughs in the film is the, the kind of salty stagehand Nick, um, who's there uh, telling stories about hijinks on the set, and you know, and I interviewed a number of people that worked on the set, but I didn't need everybody to tell me stories. I just needed one person we could connect to to help help us understand what that was like, and that's it. Um, so, you know, I feel like even though he's only in the film a few times, I feel like people understood who he was. And when he came on, they smiled. (laughs) They liked it. They liked him. You know, it's, it's interesting that, yeah, these people, it's because, you know, they're not, they are real people. I mean, the thing that happens in scripted film is, you know, it says, uh, you know, housewife tells husband, don't be home late you know, or whatever, you've got these kind of all the films are populated with these bit characters who aren't characters. They're just plot devices or exposition delivery machines, or they're just trying to, you know, do something for the main character, but they're not real people. They don't have backstories. (laughs) They don't have personalities. Um, And so the advantage of documentary is everybody's real, you know, so people will say things that again, you just wouldn't script because you couldn't because they're real, you know? And I think, um, again, that's something that I know a lot of scripted filmmakers try and infuse into their films 
and certain people were, you know, you know, Robert Altman or other people were great at um, populating their films with where everybody kind of was much more of a character. And, you know, and I, I kind of love what he did with character because it's a much more of a documentary approach. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's no wrong way or right way, but, uh, but it's helpful. You were speaking there about changing um, format or, you know, formats are gone, you know, documentary styles have gone over a kind of revision and everyone has their own um, approach. But since you began, um, you know, just, yeah, look, let's look back at uh, documentary making, what you thought that was and now the possibilities. So when I started, um, which was in kind of the early 90s, there was, there was nothing cool about documentaries that, um, you know, in places like France or the UK, um, you know, you could get documentaries made some for state television or, um, in America, there was public television or maybe HBO, but the outlets were few and nobody was clamoring for documentaries. Um, I mean, the, there was no real audience for them other than people like us who made documentaries. And so I'd say one major transformation, you know, putting the filmmaking aside is the the change in the audience for documentaries, which is people discovered that documentaries can be fascinating ways of telling stories. I think documentaries have been getting better and better. And I think the, streaming services have also broadened the audiences that now you've got a place where it's easy to find documentaries. Lots of people go towards them. And so, you know, places like Netflix, I think have have built an audience for more documentaries too. Um, And that's amazing. I mean, I think that's the biggest transformation is literally, I mean, I even remember being on a round table six or seven years ago, um, with some very big documentary titans. And they were all talking about how we shouldn't use the word documentary because it's there's a stigma to it. Yeah. And God, how that's changed. You know, <laughs> like, um, but I think up until not that long ago, it was always seen as like uh, spinach, you know, something that's uh, good for you, but maybe not that tasty. You know, <laughs> so... Uh, and I think now it's just gotten incredibly exciting and the audience has changed and the filmmaking has changed. And part of that is that we can be shooting films on our phones or we can be documenting things. I mean, digital shooting has been transformational and nonlinear editing has been transformational. So documentary where you have to spend a lot of time and gather a lot of material to make a film, it's just so much easier now um, because it's so much cheaper. You know, it's just, you know, if I want to go start shooting a documentary, I could be doing it after lunch. You know, like it's not, you can't say that with a scripted film. You know, it's to get to day one of a scripted film takes, you know, millions of dollars or, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars and months of planning and casting and sets and, you know, a documentary, it, you just step out your door and you can start, you know, and I love that part of it too. And that wasn't true when I started, you know, like I said, um, you know, now my 13 year old son can be making documentaries on his phone and editing them on his phone. You know, it's kind of incredible. Um, Is your family and is your other members of your family in filmmaking? No, (laughs) actually (laughs) my wife used to be in filmmaking and, uh, then she became a, a librarian. So she, <laughs> she escaped filmmaking. And my kids are young. They're 13 and 15. And uh, they're interested. But who knows? Who knows what will happen? But, but I, for me, I, it's the best job I could ever imagine. You know, I, I think it's, it's um, like I said, it, it scratches every itch I have of wanting to do all these different things and learn all these different things. And um, and it's not that it's easy because documentaries are insanely hard to make. 
you know, they're incredibly complex. Um, but, you know, I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Well, I think it's, I think it's a beautiful life. I would like to speak about, I know, uh, yes, music has been, we didn't spek about like, your, um, your, your mom, this Silk Road documentary or anything, but I do want to speak about some of your, um, like the best of enemies or when, mm -hmm. you know, when you made that foray into making, but this is a dramatic story, but it's a political story. I mean, we, we how are you, how careful were you about choosing that? You just, did you decide I want to make something that touches on politics or is it just that story that drew you? It was that story. I mean, I actually started my career in political journalism and um, my first job out of college was working as Gore Vidal's fact checker. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, I, I had a connection to that subject and, you know, I'm interested in politics, but, um, but that was very much that story. Um, my co-director on that, Robert Gordon, had come up with a bootleg videotape of some of these debates between Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley, these two intellectuals um, that they had in te on television and ABC television in America in 1968, this tumultuous year. And when I watched these debates, I didn't know what the story was, but I just knew that I wanted to make a film about it. You know, like it was an instinctual thing. And I think oftentimes the, f the films I do and that I'm excited about are the ones that I feel like I have to make, you know, and it's very much a, um, a gut instinct and not, um, you know, a careful plan, you know, it's like, Oh, I just, I have to do that. You know, and whether it's the F Fred Rogers was that way or Orson Welles or um, best of enemies, they're just stories that I just jumped at, you know, before I even quite understood why. Um, and, and to me, you know, a film like Best of Enemies, which I, I'm very proud of that film. Again, it's not, it's about media, really. And it's about how we talk to each other. So for me, that is also really a film about culture. <laughs> it's about how do we talk to each other? Um, you know, and how, um, you know, what does real dialogue mean? You know, it's, it's, in a way, it's, it's the opposite of won't you be my neighbor, but it asks all the same questions. You know, how do we come together and um, find our commonalities or exaggerate our differences? And who are the people pushing the levers on these kinds of forces? You know, the, these are topics I come back to again and again. Music of Strangers asks many of the same questions, which is, you know, how does culture unite or divide us? You know, and and to me, Best of Enemies is one of those films too. Um, so, you know, I, I like the fact that when I just feel instinctually that I know I want to make something, um, it's it's all it's always for the right reason. You know, it just it's I'm, I've never regretted it. So, um, so I'm going to keep going with that as much as I can. I was wondering if you had felt, I mean, I think, actually just yesterday I did an interview with a, a director who'd been quite well known for like blockbuster comedies, but like in recent years has done these political stories. If in recent years um, you felt a responsibility to go towards political storytelling or trying to understand, um, it's very confusing times now on many levels. Sure. Well, I, I think um, without a doubt, I mean, I wouldn't call it, political per se. I mean, like I said, most of the things I've done are trying to say something. And I think that's more of how I think about it, which is um, that a film has to say something. You know, it's, it, I mean, documentary, there are very few documentaries that are just, um, you know, candy that are kind of hollow uh, uh, bits of entertainment, you know, documentaries almost by their very nature root you in the real world or real people's experiences or allow you to understand or empathize with people. And without a doubt, whatever I'm working on has to say something um, in a way that that is additive and meaningful. I mean, again, this issue I come back to again and again is, you know, how 
culture connects us. And so, I mean, the film I'm making right now uh, is a documentary about Anthony Bourdain, who is a television host, a chef and a writer. and, uh, And part of what I always liked about him was, again, he was somebody who probably did more, showed more of the world to more people than just about anybody else. You know, he had a kind of an agenda of his own. I mean, he always talked about, he always quoted Mark Twain, uh, who said that travel is prejudice, travel is lethal to prejudice. (laughs) And, um, and in that way, um, travel is also an act, an act of empathy building, like documentary is. And so, um, you know, I like to, you know, I feel like that film, because he was doing a lot of the same things I feel like I've been doing. So it it's a way of discussing these issues and in a way that's not um, polemical, you know, that it's inviting people in to hear a story and then maybe teaching them something along the way too. I mean, I think that's another thing that a lot of documentarians grapple with, which is, um, are we just preaching to the converted? with our films you know how how do we reach people who we don't agree with and i think bourdain was incredibly good at reaching people he didn't agree with um and i'm very focused on that of how do i actually change people's minds mm-hmm. or inform them or help them change their own mind Yes, it's true, and I I think you are, you do have similarities, and and where you but use music as a common ground very often mm-hmm. use food, and that not everyone has experience of travel. He has, but we all have a relationship to food. It can make you curious about cultures, um, and of course, the sad end to his life uh, is a warning to us all about working really hard or being <laughs> or not. Yeah, yes, yeah. I don't no. know how you dealt with that um, aspect. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's complicated. And I, you know, I didn't fully understand that the film in part is a film about suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, in that way, um, most people probably don't want to go watch a documentary about suicide, but they might want to watch a documentary, Anthony Bourdain. And I feel like it's a chance to get people to think more seriously about those types of issues than they would otherwise, you know, um, and I think Anthony Bourdain was guilty of kind of a lot of romanticization around tragic writers' lives and kind of live fast, die young kind of attitude and and seeing the kind of impact that had on his the people in his world, I think is a, very much a cautionary tale. So so the film goes there too. You know, that's the thing. It's like it can it's doing all these things in a way that if you were just writing a script, you probably wouldn't do it yeah and that's what's so great well i look forward to i haven't i don't know if that's that's not available yet i didn't know it's going to come out next year next year all right i look forward to because i think he's a great uh storyteller as well a great communicator um and great sense of humor and all these so i i think i think it's it's funny (laughs) it's funny it's funny with the you know with serious things involved so i mean i think that that's uh it's fascinating um so i guess i should ask you we talked a bit about education and i guess it's something we've been all um i think we're all reflecting a bit about the the future um and one thing and i'm very interested in knowing creative people's ideas about the solutions to the problems or the obstacles we face now you know um, you know, so as you think about the future and education and the environment and the political situation and these, all these things, um, what are some things do you, do you feel, if you could focus your energies on them, you know, to, to arrange solutions that, that could be done and maybe how can documentary or the arts be involved in that as well? Well, I mean, I think, again, I've talked a lot about curiosity and I feel like one of the great divides we have culturally is a curiosity divide. Mm. You know, um, I can't remember who it is that said, if you want to cure prejudice, give everybody a passport and make them take a trip. You know, it's like, um, you know, we need 
I think the, I mean, again, I think documentaries are, in the words of Roger Ebert, you know, empathy machines, you know, they're about letting you understand how other people live. And that very act is one of selflessness, you know, of getting out of your own experience. And I feel like, um, you know, we have a tremendous amount of people who don't want to learn, who are actively um, kind of fighting against um, science or education or, uh, you know, um, racial understanding. You know, it, it, I mean, there's so many bad problems. And, and I think, again, trying to figure out ways to reach those people. I mean, Mr. Rogers, that documentary was very intentionally me trying to figure out a way to tell a story that reached a lot of people who have different backgrounds who I don't agree with, but we all grew up watching that show's children say, and, you know, we weren't formed as, uh, you know, politically at those times. So everybody has kind of a, a pre-cultural connection to that character. So it kind of short circuits the normal, cultural baggage in the same way that Johnny Cash did, you know, or, you know, that I mean, that's, again, this kind of well I've come back to again, again, of trying to find ways where we could talk about the stuff we do agree about, or why do we all like this thing or understand this thing? And what, what's it really about? And I think, you know, a big part of what Fred Rogers was about and something I've talked a lot about is, you know, a sense of, um, I mean, it's another version of empathy, but it's a sense of love, you know, um, and trying to kind of, I feel like in a lot of my films, I'm trying to share the kind of beauty and excitement and complication of people's lives and worlds and not, um, and invite them in, but not scold them, you know, or, um, uh, lecture them, you know, and I feel like the best way to change somebody's mind is to have them change their own mind, you know, to kind of, uh, you know, I find a lot of times if you tell people like a lot of documentaries are kind of agenda driven documentaries that are polemical documentaries. And, and I think you end up preaching to the converted oftentimes and people who don't agree with you who might see that film are naturally skeptical of being told what to think, even if they should. Um, so I think these are the kinds of questions I grapple with. I think all of us documentarians grapple with a lot. Um, so I think my approach is to try and find these stories that um, invite people in and let them make up their own mind about things. Um, and hopefully, if you tell the story well enough, um, you'll find yourself in agreement <laughs> about them. And if, if I may ask, because of Fred Rogers, um, you know, I'm wondering what your relationship is to spirituality and what questions or how, um, you know, through the making of that documentary or perhaps making documentaries is your kind of spirituality. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, I thought a lot about it um, working on this Bourdain film too, because because I agree with him about so many different things. And, um, you know, I find that, I mean, the, both Anthony Bourdain and I are, we're both atheists. So, so I'm not spiritual in that way, but, um, but I'm deeply humanist, which to me is a kind of spirituality, you know, and I think Anthony Bourdain was too. And I think that's a kind of, um, a moral framework that I can get behind you know, that I really believe in. Um, and so I tend to think of that as my, you know, kind of spiritual belief system. And I find it nourishing and um, challenging and all of the things that, that religion um, provide in people's lives. Um, so it's a, it's a different approach, but I, 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 yeah, I think ultimately it's a, it's a kind of a, a humanist spirituality. Well, I think that's one of 
the best kinds, I think, uh, mm -hmm. because it invites, it has a room for everyone in that and all are, all are welcome. Thank you, Morgan Neville, for um, your message of um, empathic imagination and parting humanist values by sharing the stories of many people across the arts and, and culture widely and, and for um, opening our eyes to um, new experiences. Uh, thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. And great speaking with you. I really enjoyed it. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producer on this podcast was Sophie Mackett. Digital media coordinator is Yu Young Lee. And Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition, traveling to leading universities, or published on our website, www.creativeprocess.info. Want to be involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info.